Good morning, Life Church. My name is Mason. I'm one of the pastors on staff. It's such an honor to be here with you this morning. I'm so excited to share. Um, I'll start off with this. Um, so I come from a movie-watching family. I did not marry into a movie-watching family, but I am from one. Um, I also come from a family that loves celebrating Christmas. Um, and every year, when the Christmas decorations came out, also came out a box full of Christmas movies. And basically, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, every night, like, we're a movie-watching family, every night, one or two movies a night, trying to blow through all the Christmas movies that we love to watch every year. Um, and one movie that we watched every year uh, was a Charlie Brown Christmas. How many of you have watched a Charlie Brown Christmas? Pretty good stuff. As I was preparing this week for uh, this message um, and reading through Luke chapter 2, I always think of uh, this part in the movie, A Charlie Brown Christmas, where Linus gets up and reads this passage uh, talking about like the meaning of Christmas. So as I'm preparing, I get this picture of Linus. I think, I don't know if they put it on the screen yet. Oh, there he is. This picture of Linus with his blankie. And I was like, man, that blankie is actually a pretty good picture for uh, a way I'd like to talk about today's message. So if you've had a kid or you've been a kid, you probably had a blankie or you had a, a pacifier or some item that was like a comfort that you loved, that you held on a little too long to and your parents had to work to kind of like stop taking that everywhere. You're embarrassing me. You know, like we got to get you through that. Now, Obviously, kids go through that, but as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know what? I'll, I think a lot of us adults still have our blankies. They may not be a blankie, but we have um, our blankies. The, these old, dirty, beat-up things that you love and you hold on to, and no one else understands. Like, why do you do that? So I thought, maybe, maybe some of us, maybe we have an old t-shirt. It's 20, 30 years old. There, there are holes in the armpits and stains at the bottom, but every Saturday morning, that's the shirt you want to put on. And, and your whole family and anyone who sees you is like, why do you hold on to that shirt? But I, I love it. It fits me in all the right ways. I just love the shirt. Maybe uh, you've got a, a piece of furniture in your living room that uh, is, is beat up and maybe it's a little bit ugly, but you just there's a, a special place in your heart for that piece of furniture. You can go to Target and get something way better, like right this minute, but you hold on to that piece of furniture. It's your centerpiece. You just love it. Uh, maybe it's an old tractor. I had a, one of my great uncles, he uh, lives on a farm, works on a farm, and he's ha got these old tractors. He could totally afford to go buy a new tractor that would work way better, but those are his babies, and he loves them, and he takes care of them, and he just won't let them go. Uh, for me, uh, I have a blankie. It's, it's my quote-unquote new truck. Uh, maybe you see me drive around. It's a 2001 Maroon GMC Sierra, and uh, it was so funny. One of my youth leaders the other week called it my junk, tr like it's a piece of junk. I'm like, hey, like that's my truck. Like I love that thing. So a little more on the story. So that's my dad's truck. It's been in, in my family like since I was a kid. I have drank many Mountain Dews and eaten a lot of corn nuts in that truck, hanging out with my dad. In high school, my car was a piece of junk. It was always broken down. And so the truck was actually what I drove most of high school. So that's a special place in my heart. And when I had a chance to get it this fall, I was like, I'll take it. I don't care how many miles, I'll take that truck. And um, I love it. It's my, maybe my blankie. What's interesting about our blankies, though, is that our love for these things aren't disingenuous, like they're real. We care about them. Um, and while culture and marketing and advertising is bombarding us with messaging, convincing us to love new and improved and better looking, there's a part of us that holds on to imperfect things. We just love 
these old imperfect things. And I think, for me at least, this illustrates something that's true about us. As humans, it's in our nature to love discarded things. It's in our nature to love discarded things. And this may be a leap, but I think this nature to love discarded things absolutely reflects our good and our beautiful God. Except in God's case, his love isn't directed towards things or objects, but his, uh, his love is, discarded, uh, is directed at people. God loves discarded, imperfect, even looked at sideways, people. And we can trace this truth throughout Scripture. There is a clear emphasis that God chooses, uses, and loves flawed, discarded, and imperfect people. As I was preparing for the message, I started going through my Bible, like first few books of the Bible, to like come up with a list of names of people that God used who fit that description. And I wasn't even hardly a few books into the Bible when I was already, the list of names grew too long. I cannot tell you how clear of an emphasis it is throughout Scripture that God loves, chooses, and uses broken and discarded people. So we're left with this question, why does God, why? Why does God love broken and discarded people? Why does he use and choose and love broken, discarded people? I think this is a huge question and something we struggle to understand at times. And as I was preparing this week, one of my favorite authors, his name's Sky Jatani, kind of helped lead me to an answer to this question. I believe God loves broken and discarded people because they are his, because they are created in his image. Every human being is beloved by God, his beloved. Every person, their deepest core identity, your deepest core identity is as a beloved child of God. And through God's love of the broken, God seeks to restore dignity and worth that sin, suffering, and brokenness has tried to steal away. This, I believe, is such a beautiful picture. This is why God spends so much time in his word showing and emphasizing his love for the broken because his mission is to restore our core identity as his beloved. What the world has tried to steal away from you, what brokenness and sin have tried to ruin, God seeks to restore the dignity and worth stolen from us through sin and brokenness. That's why he loves us. That's why he chooses us. That's why he uses us. And our story today continues this thread of truth through the presence of the shepherds um, in the story of Jesus' birth. So I'm going to jump into that and kind of explain what I mean. So in verse 11, the angels appear to the shepherds, and they clearly reveal what Jesus' identity is. And if we'll look at verse 11, the angels say to the shepherds, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. In this verse, the angels reveal three key parts of Jesus' identity that I want to look at. First, Jesus is Savior or Deliverer. He would, be the, he would save the people from their sins, and this would be accomplished by Jesus' death and his resurrection. Second, we see them call him the Messiah. A more word-for-word uh, -word translation says he is the Christ. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard words like Messiah and Christ, and we, we, we get them. But the idea that we need to take away from the term Messiah or term Christ, what a first century Jew is thinking when they hear this is king, our anointed king. He will rule over us and his kingdom will be established forever. We read this in 2 Samuel 7. 
And then they say he is the Lord. He is Savior, he is King, and he is the Lord. Now the word Lord in Greek can, is used in multiple ways. A, a few terms that we see translated, the word Lord translated as, is as master or sir. So these are like people who are in charge, who have authority. But the word Lord uh, in, in the Greek can also mean God. And uh, people who, who study these things, scholars kind of disagree and discuss how that word is used and what it means because in certain contexts, it's really important. And I would say here in Luke 2, 11, it's very important. Um, but thankfully, scholars agree and believe here that the angels aren't calling Jesus master. They're not calling him sir. They're, they're calling him God, which is significant. Jesus is savior, he is king, and he is God. So if Jesus' birth is the birth of the true God king, wouldn't you then expect like a royal welcome, like a big welcome party? Our king, the Lord God, is born today. Wouldn't you expect a huge welcome wagon? And we get that picture a little bit in Matthew chapter 2, where we see the wise men come and bring these kingly royal gifts to Jesus, but, we, but it's most likely that they didn't actually come until Jesus was a toddler. The first people to behold God in flesh were the shepherds. It was the shepherds. Now, the Bible is full of references to shepherds throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And, the shepherd, and shepherds and shepherding is genuinely, or genu, generally, words, Mason, generally used as, a, as like a positive analogy. In the Old Testament, we see God called the shepherd. We think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. In the, in the New Testament, we see Jesus called a good shepherd. In the New Testament, we also see Christian leaders and church leaders called to shepherd as God is our shepherd. But here in the first century, here in the day that Jesus is born, being a shepherd was not such a positive thing. In first century Israel, Israel shepherds were the discarded ones. Shepherds were really a despised class amongst the Jews. And here's, here's a few reasons why. So the circumstances of their job as a shepherd working with sheep prevented them from practicing ceremonial law, and this made them ritually unclean. Now, ritual purity laws were of the utmost importance in Jewish life. In the first century, um, it was a highly religious Jewish culture at the time. And ritual purity determined your ability to, to go to the temple to worship, which was a non-negotiable for worship as prescribed by the law. So according to these ritual purity laws, contact with someone who was unclean made you unclean. It transmitted the impurity. So anyone who was made perpetually unclean by their circumstance or their job was doomed to a lonely and a sad existence and really an inability to worship God in the temple which would have been a crushing loss. This is the same reason it was so horrible to be a leper in Jesus' day, was being prevented from, one, being able to worship as they knew they were supposed to worship at the temple, and two, a, a loneliness and an isolation from the rest of uh, the community. Beyond being unclean, shepherds also had a really bad reputation. Shepherds had a reputation as thieves. Historical documents reveal that their reputation was so low that shepherds were not even allowed to testify in court. They were viewed as unreliable and untrustworthy. 
So without a doubt, the shepherds beholding Jesus were the low men on the totem pole. They were outcasts, undesirables, scum of the earth, discarded ones. And from our view, we may be able to see that, ah, man, some of those circumstances were unjust, but at the time, it was just the way things were. We also, though, don't have to romanticize the shepherds and be like, well, these shepherds must have been holy. These shepherds must have been like good shepherds. I don't think that the text demands that. In fact, I believe some of the shepherds beholding Jesus' birth may have been fitting of this not-so-great reputation because these were the kind of people that God intended to first behold Jesus, their Savior, their King, and their God. God intended to honor and to lift up and to dignify the discarded, the broken, and the sinner from the moment of Jesus' birth. This, to me, is, speaks so powerfully that in the grand plan of Jesus' life, the good news wasn't waiting to be preached through his life, his ministry, and his death, and his resurrection. But from the moment he is born, God is communicating what he came to do and who he came for. That night, God sought to restore dignity and worth and core identity that sin, suffering, and brokenness had tried to steal away from these shepherds. Jesus' birth, as in his life, was proclaiming, this is who I came for. This is what I'm here to do. God is so good. So how does this affect you and me? How should this change us, impact us, affect us? I'm going to take a quick drink. First things first. I think the first thing we need to do, the first takeaway for me, is that we need to embrace our shepherd identity. Embrace our shepherd identity. So I believe this is key, fundamental, foundational to being a follower, a disciple, or my favorite new one, an apprentice of Jesus. We must embrace our shepherd identity. Here's what I mean. When I, talk, when I say shepherd here in this point, I'm referring to the shepherds in the story of Jesus' birth, the discarded, the broken, the lowly, and the sinner. Some of you read this story and you easily identify with the shepherds today. You have no problem putting yourselves in their shoes. And when you read this story, you realize that it's God's way of telling you, I love you. I called you. You are worth it to me. I claim you. I restore dignity and worth to you. What the world has stolen away, I am giving back to you. You are mine. For some of you, Maybe the shepherds aren't so easy to identify with. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home like me and you've known nothing else. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. But for whatever reason, something that I think we as Christians tend to get wrong or mixed up about is God's relationship to our brokenness. We feel and we wonder, does God love me or does God hate me? Does God love me when I'm good and hate me when I'm bad? Is he happy when I'm doing everything right? And is he mad at me when I get things wrong and I fall short? Maybe because of how God was presented to you, maybe because of your personality, but 
Emotionally, this is where many of us land. We get into this idea that we have a performance-based relationship with God. And how do we respond? We respond by convincing ourselves we're righteous, by getting good at following the rules. We can control the outside. For those of us especially good at controlling the things that culturally we look at to say, are you a Christian or not? If, are you not a Christian? If you're good at controlling those things, we can get to this place where we convince ourselves that we're righteous. We convince ourselves that we're good, at, we're good with God. We try to earn God's love or we find security in our outward righteousness to feel good with God. Because when we believe that God loves me when I'm good and he's mad at me when I'm bad, then what I do, and you may not realize it and I didn't realize it, but I'm convincing myself that I'm good to feel secure. I want to feel secure in my relationship with God. So these mind games happen and I convince myself that I'm righteous. But this same view of God, that he is happy when I'm good and mad when I'm bad, is the same view of God that I believe pushes many people away from him and away and out of the church. Because they may not be as good at controlling what's on the outside and what's accepted as righteousness. And their only choice is to walk away because of how they see God seeing them. Now understanding God's relationship to our sin and our brokenness isn't easy. Because like I said earlier, we have this core identity. We are created in the image of God, his son and daughter, his beloved. We are made in his image. But we know in, in this time before Jesus returns, we're also born into sin. So we feel like we've got these dual identities. And how does God feel about me when both of these things are going on? I get that it's difficult to wrap our minds around. And I don't know if I have time to parse out every bit of theology. But what I want to do today is grasp onto what we can see. What can we see? A couple of famous verses, one that we just heard Alethea read. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Here's what we should easily see today, church. God isn't trying to purge sin from us so that he can love us. He loves us already. He loved us first. 1 John 4.19 says, Church, Jesus' love was the cause, not the effect. His love was the cause, not the effect. God didn't send Jesus to die for us so that he could love us, so that he could clean us up and then claim us and love us. He loved us already. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us already. His love was the cause, not the effect. The tree of self-righteousness can only produce bad fruit. It is a scheme of the enemy and his lies. It wrecks our view of God, it wrecks our view of ourselves, and it wrecks our view of others. And speaking of purging, this is what must be purged from our life, a spirit of self-righteousness. And we can only do this by embracing our shepherd identity. When you understand that God loves you already in your sin and in your brokenness, you don't have to live a lie, live a life trying to convince yourself that you're not broken. Accept that you're broken continuously. On our journey as Christians of being sanctified or as we're called to become more like Jesus as we walk with him, even in that journey, the mantra of our lives can only ever be, 
There but by the grace of God go I. Accept that today, as much as the day you first said yes to Jesus, as much today as the first day you said yes to Jesus, today I need his grace. Today I need his mercy. Today I need his kindness. Today I need his forgiveness. I think of in Luke 18, the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. We are meant to identify with the tax collector who goes into the temple to worship and his head is bowed and he beats his chest and he's humble before God, grateful, and, grateful for and asking for God's mercy. And ironically, there's a Pharisee on the other side of him and his thoughts, he's thinking, thank God I'm not like the tax collector. And then Jesus says, hey, guess who God is pleased with? Guess whose worship God is pleased with? The tax collector, not the Pharisee. You and I are hopeless without God. Embracing your shepherd identity is crucial to being able to receive God's love truly. To experience true inner transformation is to embrace our shepherd identity, to know that we are broken continuously continuously in need of his love, his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. That he loves me already. He loves me as I am. If you haven't experienced God's love this way, whether you're new to the faith, or searching your faith, or you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe today's your day to experience and know God's love as it truly is. My second point, second takeaway, is to find your field. Today I want us to find our fields. So the key marker to identifying, do I have a self-righteousness problem? Is to ask yourself the question, how do you view others? How do you view others today? Are you constantly judging their sin? Comparing yourself to them? You know better than to say it, but in your heart and in your mind, you know, I'm, I'm holier. I'm better than they are. They need to listen to me and not the other way around. This mindset and these thoughts and these emotions have completely lost sight of how God sees you and how God intends for you to see others. In order to love others as God intends, church, we need to identify with the broken and with the sinners. We need to see ourselves in them. All of us, when we read the story of Luke 2, should be able to put ourselves in the shoes of the shepherds that God would honor and dignify and call me first, that he would dignify and restore dignity and worth to me, a sinner. As Christians, when we engage in Christian mission, so we know from the Great Commission and from the Great Commandment, Matthew 22, Matthew 28, our simple and most all-encompassing purpose is to love God, to love people, and to lead people to Jesus. This is what God has called all of us to. And when we engage in God's mission to love others and to lead others to him, we can't do it from a place of superiority where we see ourselves here and you over there. I, they're not supposed to listen to you and they're not supposed to listen to me because I've got this all figured out. No, I just started walking with Jesus and I've put on his easy yoke and I've learned how to bear the burden of the weight of this life and I want you to experience that yoke too. 
We don't do it from a place of superiority. We don't love others from a place of superiority, but from our own place of brokenness, identifying with them and what they're going through, loving them in that place. We have to see them this way. It means everything to loving others the way that God intends for us to. So when I say find your field, find the people that God has called you to love and to lead to him, but do it from your shepherd identity, from that place of I'm broken and in need of Jesus always. The question then remains, who are the discarded ones that God has put on your heart to restore dignity and worth to, to show through your life, through the things that you say and the things that you do, that they are the beloved of God? And church, finding your field Participating in the work of Jesus, this isn't a calling for just a few of us. This is a calling for all of us. All of us are called to engage in the mission of Jesus, to love our neighbor, and to lead others to him. So, who are you called to? What's your field? I think for some of us, our our fields are familiar. We're called to people um, and I, I've heard this said, and I've, I've taught this in some of our life church classes, that God so often has us serve out of our own wounds and our own brokenness. The situations and things that God has brought you through in your life, God puts a burden on your heart to serve those who have been through or going through what you've been through. Maybe that looks like getting together with people who are going through divorce, going out and reaching single parents, people going through addiction, abusive situations, foster kids, uh, people in poverty, families dealing with uh, terminal illnesses, whatever the experiences that you've had, your own brokenness, your own struggles, your own suffering, maybe God is calling you to serve people going through those very same things. God can also help us find our fields through aha moments, I guess is the best way to put it where through chance encounters or seeing or hearing about a need and there's just a tug on your heart, maybe you have zero experience with it in your past, but you just know in your heart, man, those are the people I'm supposed to serve. Those are the people I'm supposed to go be Jesus to. And there are other fields. I think the best way to say it is maybe your field is at work or where you play or where you stay. Maybe God has put a burden on you for your job that you just feel a deep calling to be Jesus to your coworkers, to be Jesus to your clients. Maybe God has called you to your neighborhood, to the place that you stay, that you're supposed to be Jesus to your neighbors. Show them the love of God. Be a friend. Be there. Be a support. Maybe God has put a, a, a burden on your heart for the places that you play. We all have hobbies, and a lot of times through our hobbies, hobbies we get to know people, Nicholas and I have been experiencing that in CrossFit, working out with Doug. Doug is so buff, just so you guys know. Like, you may or may not be able to tell in the hoodie, but he is ripped, and I'm jealous. But anyway, side, sidebar. But through CrossFit, we've realized, man, there's such a community. People that get together to work out, but it's been one of the best ways for me to get to know people in our community through being a part of that. And, and I'm sure that there's things like that for you. I know for some people, they, they're, um, they're into hunting, and through hunting, they build community. They get to know people through that. My wife is a thrifter. She loves going to antique stores, and it is hilarious. I go with her sometimes, and every 
like store, thrift store, antique store owner in a 50-mile radius knows my wife by her first name. Like, hey, Taylor, good to have you back. But it's so cool how God is building community through her passion and through her interest. Maybe for you, I'm trying to think, I have some other uh, ideas. Maybe it's, oh, I, have no, I already said them all. But, haha, <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Maybe God is calling you to, maybe that's your field, the place that you play. But here's the thing, your field is anywhere, can be anywhere, that God puts you in proximity to other people. Wherever God puts you in community with others is an opportunity and a place that God may be calling you to, to be Jesus. And it's not a switch that we can turn on and we can turn off. I'm not saying you got one field and that's it. You can just be a heathen wherever else you go. No, we're supposed to be Jesus everywhere. And maybe you have more than one field. But I do believe that God puts a deep sense of urgency and calling on us to carry out the mission in specific places. And we need to be not just aware of that fact, but listening to the Holy Spirit. God, what is my field? Where do you want me to invest myself and my life? You find that place, and then the question is, well, what do I do when I get there? And I, that's a sermon or a sermon series in itself. But simply, here's what I think simply we should all do when we find our field. Be a friend. Just be a friend. Befriend or be a friend. Think of it that way. Care to get to know people. This is the most valuable thing that you can offer is your friendship. It's relationship. It's care, it's conversation, it's serving, it's helping. But again, we don't do this from a place of self-righteousness so that I can feel like I'm being righteous or so that I can put you as a person I've reached for Jesus on my, my, as a merit badge on my vest. No, we care from a genuine place. We love you as Jesus loves you, as his beloved created in his image. You are worthy of my time and my friendship and I genuinely care for you, no matter what. Reflect the unconditional love in this. Be a friend. My last point, worship team, you can come up, is clear your path. Clear your path. So growing up, I mentioned my great uncle who farms. He uh, farms the family farm, the Rosine family farm. It's in north central Kansas. And I grew up as a kid going there every year. And I remember discovering cow paths. I did not know this. But... It's crazy. You could be in a field full of grass, and right down that field is a, is a dirt trail, and there's hundreds of cattle, and they'll walk the same trail. They'll find this, the path of least resistance, and instead of walking wherever they want to walk, they walk this one way to get where they want to go. It's crazy. My dogs do the same thing. They've made mud paths in my nice yard because they've got their way of traveling. Many uh, animals that are herded that travel in groups do the same thing. They find a path, and they find the path of least resistance, and they travel it over and over again. And so as I think about our way of walking with Jesus, our way of walking with Jesus, I think there's some things that are inhibiting us, some ways that we're maybe not walking the easy path that God has called us to. One of the greatest inhibitors to walking in the way of Jesus in our modern world is the pace at which we live it. I see it especially in the church. We feel pulled in every direction. For young families between school and sports and extracurriculars and church, you and your kids barely have time to breathe, let alone get from one thing to the next on time. Young people, if you're in my age group and you're a young professional, we've got this rise and grind culture 
telling us to hustle, to never stop, to work hard, overtime, more time, make money, work, rest, eat, repeat, achieve. And if there's time, maybe you can have some friends. Our modern, our American busyness culture looks at us like a, you're a no good lazy bum if you're not keeping yourself busy and doing something. And beyond the modern demands of, our, of culture and busyness, we've got these things to deal with that are literally designed to demand every little bit of attention that you have left. Have you ever had your phone in your pocket and thought it vibrated and pulled it out? It's like, nope, they've got you, if that's the case. But we've got to, we're moving so fast and we're so bombarded with information and entertainment and with noise. And there's this sense in us that God has called me to life to the full. I know that there's these things that God has called me to. Relationship with him, loving others, serving others. I know that family is important, but I look at my life and I feel like I'm just falling short all over the place. This can't be the life to the full that God has promised. I'm so excited for this next year, our first sermon series. We're going to be talking about rhythm and margin. And kind of the whole point of the series is touching on this idea that slowing down in simplicity is absolutely crucial to the life of a follower of Jesus, to be spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and even physically healthy. But I can feel it in my bones. My life is crying out to stop long enough to breathe, long enough to think, to hear my own thoughts, let alone hear God's thoughts and his voice speaking to me. Are you with me? How many of you are keenly aware that as a Christian, you're missing out on the full life that God promises? I think in order to embrace our shepherd identity, to know God and ourselves is the way he intends, to find our field and engage in God's mission, we need to clear the path of our lives, make a way so that these things can happen, so that we can follow Jesus' way. As a church and as the church in America, I feel like we've accepted a cultural idea that I don't think vibes super well with Jesus. I think the way of Jesus is simpler. I think the way of Jesus is slower. I think we think that we're going to find value in doing more. And I think there's something beautiful and something that God is totally in. When we lay down our striving of trying to get what we want to get out of this life, I think there's beauty in actually really valuing, simplifying my life so that I can really engage with the things that are most important. The best, way, uh, the best picture for doing this and, and kind of doing a, a mental evaluation of where my life is at, I got from Pastor Greg, who got from Pastor Tom. But it's this idea of unpacking your bag. Take a moment maybe this week and look at your life as a bag full of stuff. Unzip it and unpack it. All the things that you do that you like, that you don't like, the things that you have to do, the thing, but it's so busy and it's overflowing. Unpack your bag and then ask yourself, man, what's most important? Where are the areas in my life that I, I wish that I was doing better? The areas in my life that I wish I had more time for and I just feel like I'm missing something. And start to repack your bag with those things that are most important, with this mindset that's willing to embrace less is more. I heard this recently in a sermon that the way of more and the way of grow at all costs leads to death. There is no end. It is all consuming when all we want is more, more, more. Gotta stop. 
What does God really want? So if you're repacking your bag and you know that your relationship with God is the thing that, with the amount of time that you have, is the thing on the chopping block, start there. Rearrange your life to prioritize that which is most important. If you are realizing that you're lacking in time with family or life-giving friendships, and that's the thing on the chopping block of your life and your busyness, then slow down and add it to your bag. If you don't have time to rest, to breathe, to hear your own thoughts, then slow down, simplify, rest. If you, don't have, if you feel like, man, I'm just going, 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 and I don't have time for, I believe the purpose that God has called me to, I just don't have time for that, then think about it. Slow down, simplify, and do what you can. Now, this isn't something we're all going to get figured out all at once. Look at it as, as a, a thing at a time, a piece at a time, a baby step. Where do I want to start? But let's in, embrace slowing down and simplifying. Let's go God's speed, the way of Jesus so that we can experience this life to the full that God has promised us, so we can experience him in all his fullness, so we can experience mission in all its fullness, so we can experience family and relationship in this life that God has blessed us with. Let's slow down, embrace our limits, and let God do the work. If you'll stand, let's pray as we go into a time of worship. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for every person here today. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you have, that your heart is for the discarded ones. Lord, I thank you that your heart and your your mission is to restore that which the world has tried to take away. You remind us who we really are. Lord, we are yours, ever in need of you, of your grace, of your mercy your provision, Lord, I'll never not need you. And that's where we're all at, every human being, saved or unsaved, we need you, Lord. Help us to see others with your eyes and love them with your heart, Lord. To stop seeing ourselves as, as, as righteous and better than and superior. Help us to see others the way you see them, God. Love them the way that you love them, God. Purge self-righteousness from us. And Father, I pray that you would teach us how to clear our path, what it looks like to walk your way, a way that's simpler, a way that's slower, a way that embraces these things that are really, really most important. God, so that we can experience all that you have for us, the gift that this life is, the purpose that sits in it when we listen and we're willing to embrace. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.